Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, this intro is a dangerous one because I can't look at Graham because he and I are going to start to laugh to the point where we derail the whole thing because jokes were made and things were said that had to be deleted. And now he can barely keep his shit together. I'm currently looking in the middle of the room where I can see him in my left peripheral. And I could feel as I was starting to even hint at what the joke was, I started to feel him kind of come unglued. So I can't look at him. I'm going to introduce this podcast. Today we have on Arsh. And this is someone that I met through Fit for Service. And he is a practicing psychotherapist. And I'm always very curious to have conversations with people who are either psychotherapists or psychiatrists or social workers or anyone in the psychological domain that's inside of the quote unquote system. Uh, I, I love speaking with them just to get a sense of like, what do you see? How has your path through it been? Um, what are the models that you use that seem to help? What are the models that you were taught that don't seem to help? And we were able to get into all sorts of interesting things. Uh, we non-ironically and probably hypocritically talked a lot about how to be a good parent and neither he or I have kids. So take it for what it's worth. It's where the conversation went. Um, it was a really enjoyable podcast and I really appreciate people who have dedicated their life, you know, officially, you know, vocationally to serve and to help people. And I have a special affinity for people who have chosen to try to help people psychologically because it can get deep and uncomfortable and painful and overwhelming and all the other things uh, when you help someone heal whatever is going on psychologically. So it was a great conversation. I think you guys will enjoy it. If you would like to stay connected, uh, check out ericgotzi.com and get on the newsletter, Feasting Fridays. And uh, I'll be sharing more about it in the coming weeks, but I've gotten super clear on what the next project is that I'm going to be working on. And it's going to be a live lecture series called An Intro to the Game of Life. And I'm starting it to begin to hone the material so that I can teach this perspective to my future children in a way where they can understand it while they're, you know, being homeschooled for lack of a better word. Homeschooled feels like a weird thing to say because it implies that schooling happens outside of the home, which feels like it normalizes uh, disintegrated type of learning where, you know, the first school would be the home. But I don't know. Uh, we'll just let that flutter off into space like the hummingbirds that came and visited the garden in my backyard that I could see uh, during the podcast, which was cool. Shout out to Casey, uh, hashtag alchemize nature for helping me put together this garden that I have in the backyard that I probably give myself like a B minus on how I've been taking care of it, but everything's alive. Um, the rose bushes aren't really, they're not Rosen. They're not DeMar DeRozan. They're more DeMar DeFalling off of the 
Graham really liked that. He's a big Chicago's fan. Um, <clears throat> totally lost my thought, but you know what? No, I haven't. I'm back. I hope that you enjoy this podcast. And as always, I know that there are so many things competing for your attention, consciously and subconsciously. And I really appreciate that you chose and choose and will choose, God damn it, to check out the podcast. <laughs> I love you guys. Enjoy. Arsh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, I met you a couple of months ago at a fit for service event and uh, we played basketball a little bit, which was a lot of fun, <laughs> but you introduced yourself as um, a psychiatrist and I was blown away that someone inside of the game was open-minded enough to be at the event that we were at. And then you sent me an incredibly thoughtful email. So just for people listening, uh, I do end up seeing most of the emails that you guys send in, but I don't respond to almost any of them because if I did that, then I wouldn't do anything else but that. Uh, but I noticed the energy in your email. And so I sat with it, hit you with a response, and now we're doing a podcast. And so whatever work you have done to both be open enough inside of the career that you had to say yes to a fit for service event. Like that's incredible. Mm -hmm. And then thank you for being in whatever vibratory state you were in when you send the email, because it's going to give us the chance to have this conversation. Yeah. I'm excited, man. One quick clarification, uh, not a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist. Oh, that's right. So <laughs> yeah, but I'm super stoked to, to get in touch like this, man, and to have this conversation because, uh, I mean, yourself, Aubrey, are two guys that, two men that I've, I've really looked up to for a long time. And you've had drastic, profound impacts on the way that I have shaped myself in relationships, in the ways that I've handled some tough shit in my life. And so I just really uh, have a deep, deep respect for, for yourself, man, and the work that you do. And to get in touch at Fit for Service was a fucking blessing. The, the basketball game, we, we probably shouldn't go into that, man, because I remember <laughs> this one shot I took, and it, it, I swear I hit the fence. Like, nowhere near the backboard, just straight for the fence. And I'm like, uh, I don't know what I'm doing here, but... Yeah, Eric's I actually do remember <laughs> that, and it made me lose all respect for you. And so this is really just charity. No, I'm joking. Um <laughs> One of the things I want to touch on real quick that I think is interesting is I appreciate your clarification. And the reason why it was kind of like mind bending to me uh, when I had you in the category of psychiatrist is that uh, a short version of this is the way psychiatry as a graduate program is ran in our country as far as I understand it through reading journalists, you know, cause I didn't go through any actual program is that the majority of their classes, like more than half involve them studying textbooks of pharmaceuticals and their interactions with other pharmaceuticals. And that those books are written by psychiatrists who are consultants for pharmaceutical companies. And that, there isn't even a debate about whether or not these are the tools to use or how to use them. It's not fair to say how to use them, but 
there isn't even a philosophical debate on whether or not this is the best way for us to be helping people. Mm-hmm. And that there's such a sunk cost fallacy that happens by the time that they graduate mm-hmm. where they had to spend hundreds of hours studying the interactions between pharmaceuticals and that a huge part of the knowledge base that they have, that they had to demonstrate they had learned in order to get their license, um, it leaves people in a place where it takes a tremendous amount of inner navigation of the contradiction of different reality tunnels to Mm. see helping people as anything other than providing them prescription medications. Mm. So um, that's just an interesting side note. Uh, The question to start the conversation that I love to ask is, uh, what is your first memory? Mm. My first memory that I can remember. Hmm. Honestly, man, it's, uh, I'm going to, jump to a dark place real quick. It's uh, the first memory that I can remember from the earliest age is probably being in the living room of an old house I used to live in maybe shit, like 20 years ago. Um, and being in the living room and having this distinct recollection of hearing my parents yelling in the kitchen and knowing it was going to escalate somehow. Like I had this that I, even as I think about it right now, I, I start to feel the emotions coming up of like the, this knowing that it's going to escalate and then an explosion's about to happen. And just I hear screams from the kitchen and I know they're fighting. And uh, after that, it's, it's kind of a blank. So, so that's what the age first were memory. you then? I must have been around four years old, I think. Yeah. An interesting thing that I um, am like slowly working out through asking this question on the podcast is there's a couple of things. Based off of what I've studied about cognitive psychology and developmental psychology, it's that the autobiographical consciousness, you know, which is what we tend to call the ego, doesn't come online until about age three or four. Mm. And it's like, it's as if the brain has to create the biological architecture of the biocomputer, you know, to use Mm. a modern metaphor. But that then it takes some type of catalyzing emotional spark once the minimum required biological architecture exists in the brain. And then there's like a a spark of an emotion that then like gets the thing booted up and running. Mm -hmm. And that whatever the flavor of the story of our lives are, that primary emotional spark sets the tone for the myth that makes us that will eventually get to the point, hopefully in our adulthood where we can look back at the myth that made us and essentially ask, do I want the ending implied in the story or do I want to die to this story and be reborn into a new myth that makes me? Um, so some of these questions that I'm going to ask are to, try to like flesh out the primary myth. Um, And I think that that's our first memory is a significant piece there. The next one that I think is really important is who are the first couple of people either living or imaginal, AKA from books or movies or stories that you admired? Mm. The first people. 
I remember Goku in Dragon Ball Z. I love that. Was, <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> oh man, I was obsessed with that show, and and it was like a uh, like a hardcore obsession with that show. Like I, I I'd be at school, yeah. And so he was definitely a fictional character that I really looked up to. Um, another person would be. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking about cartoons right now. And it makes me think about like how much I was engaging in like escapism from like the tension going on at that point. But Ash Ketchum in Pokemon. Yep. He, he was someone I admired as well. And yeah. So and I'll so with those two. a thing that I would love to offer, especially because you're a psychotherapist and I'm excited to later in the conversation, get into like what models inspired you, but mm-hmm. uh, to call it escapism feels like it's pathologizing an adaptation Mm -hmm. and that if you think of your nervous system like a seed and that the seed has this incredible inner intelligence that self-organizes the transformations of the seed to bloom it into a tree we have that too and if there aren't living examples of admirable modes of behavior the intelligence of the seed will find it where it can find it. And that mm-hmm. to call it escapism, you know, like you were fucking a kid. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. So an interesting question to connect to is um, if you had to articulate a specific virtue that you admired most in Goku and then a specific virtue that you admire most in Ash, what would those two virtues be? Yeah. In in Goku it would be the determination, like the this unwavering determination that no matter what obstacle is in front of him, even if he gets his ass kicked a hundred times, he's he's gonna go in that damn gravity chamber and he's gonna level up and he's gonna do the <laughs> thing that he needs to do. <laughs> and he's gonna even if he dies, then then all of a sudden he's 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 training and then racing back to get to the 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 world again. It's it's like this unwavering determination and this like lack of fear or this um I know courage isn't lack of fear, but courage and this lack of fear that I really admired in him. And, and uh, for Ash? For Ash, it would be, I think it might be some of the same, man. This determination, because I always had this sense in Ash of like, man, you're, you've been in so many different regions now. Your Pikachu must be level like a billion and it's still getting its ass kicked and you're still training these Pokemon, still like starting from fresh. Um, so it's this, it's this sense of like getting your ass kicked and then not letting it phase you and just coming back stronger um, and not wavering, like just being so fucking yep. strong-headed. Yeah. Was there a villain that really captured you? Like for me, it was Scar for sure. Mm. But like, was there a villain for you that really captured your attention? A villain? Can it be a, like a, in terms of like a, like a cartoon character or even like, a, like a in movies? It can be anything living or imaginal. Okay. It was uh, The Exorcist. Interesting. What, what specifically, like, what was the specific attribute, dare I say virtue, of the villain in that that felt like it most disturbed you? A sense of helplessness. Like a sense of no matter what the hell you do, this entity or this being or this spirit, whatever it is, 
is going to just like capture and dominate you and you have no self-will against that you're helpless yeah so what uh what's interesting is whether or not we like to admit it the way our psyche seems to function is inside of a mythopoetic story Mm -hmm. and that the uh heroes and heroines that we're attracted to because you don't get to choose what you're interested in something inside of you chooses it for you so the things that we are drawn to through our interest like the characters uh they start to represent the quote-unquote hero that we're trying to be in our mythopoetic unfolding and the interesting thing is that the villain that we are most captured by tends to represent what our specific form of resistance is. Mm-hmm. And like for me, because my gift is language, Scar represents the like, I am going to use the word as the lie to try to create the, my imitation of the world that I think that I believe is how things should be, even though the way to get there is only through lies. You know, like, that's my shadow. And if you think about, so these are just things for you to munch on later that uh, the specific aspect of the shadow that uh, resonates with your mythopoetic story seems to be the, I'm helpless. There's something dark and greater than me that I can't overcome. Mm -hmm. And then the virtue that you love is, I don't give up, you know? Mm -hmm. So the next question that kind of like fleshes this out is what was the story that you first fell in love with? So I have a um, sister that's 10 years younger than me. And I spent a lot of time like uh, caretaking for her when she was a baby. And I got to see this firsthand, but I also see it with many of my friends who have children that they get Once they get to like age three or four, they find either a book or a movie or a story that they demand be reread or replayed or retold dozens of times. And for me as a kid, it was The Lion King. Um, What was your story when you were young that first really captured your attention? Yeah, it can be a made-up story too, right? Of course. Yeah, okay. So um, it, it would be this... So I was hyper in my imagination, especially uh, just the, the respect I had for Goku at that time and so forth. And I remember these distinct memories as a kid of I would call up some, uh, this was later on, maybe I'd be like seven or eight years old or something. And I'd, I'd call up some of my friends in school at that time. And I'd be like, look, I can do a Kamehameha. Like, and I, I'm and on the phone. I'd be like doing these grunts, and like I'd be like, <laughs> like, like, listen, I'm I'm actually doing this shit right now, and I I would be like, okay, I just released it in the air. Can you see it? Look out, like go outside your house and look in the air and see if you can see it. And then I remember a couple of times. I don't know why I, this would happen, but I remember a couple of times I would uh, make like a loud bang on the phone call, and I'd be like, oh my god, it actually happened, and it just went in my wall. And now there's like this big dent in my wall and you have to come over and see it. And I would intentionally make a dent in my wall with like the doorknob or something like that. And I remember repeating that story to like two or three different friends. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend. 
<laughs> I had a friend when I was a kid. Uh, I want to say his name because he kicked me in the hand and he broke my thumb. So fuck him. But no, I'm joking. <laughs> I won't say his name. But I remember that he was telling me a story that he went to like a convention where they had a device that could measure your uh, power level, like from Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. And that when he went on stage, he like powered up and had the highest power level. And like, <laughs> I didn't have the words for it back then, but I knew he was lying. And, yeah. and then it was this weird, like, he can't not say this. And on some level, it's, it's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And I also know that he's not telling me the truth. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I had my own versions of that, but because it's in my shadow, I'm conveniently hiding it from myself so I can sound virtuous. But um, <laughs> that's really interesting. And I'm not going to psychoanalyze that on air, uh, but we can talk about it more if you want to. But let's right. shift it to either like a movie that you saw or a book that you read? Like what was the first story that really caught you? Yeah, okay. So the first story that caught me. It would have to be... Oh man, it's, uh, the, the name of the book is escaping me. It's about like this, this, this vampire where he gets turned into a vampire against his will and then it's a circus. He has to go to a circus. Uh uh, it, it, there was an adaptation to it in movies as well, but the name's escaping me. But the idea is that there's this boy and he stumbles upon this, this older guy who happens to be a vampire. Uh, Cirque. Oh man, if I get the title, I'll let you know. But, um, and then the, the guy basically, so he's so fed up with his life. The boy is so fed up with his life that he asks the older man upon learning that he's a vampire to transform him into a vampire as well. And the older man's giving him like all these warnings of like, your life is going to be completely changed. You have to leave your family. You have to uh, like always be traveling with me. You're going to be in danger sometimes. Uh, So the, the life as you know, it is going to be different. Do you consent? And, and the boy thought about it for a sec and he's like, yeah, screw it. Let's do it. And so he faked his death to his family. Like he, he kissed his parents goodnight one final time. He kissed his sister goodnight one final time. And he's like, uh, just I love you guys. And it's the first time he said, I love you. And then he goes and he jumps off the balcony in a sense. And because he knows the vampire guy is going to give him some blood and he's going to save him, uh, even though he's like on the ground crippled and stuff. Um, so he jumps off the balcony and the parents see it and, and there's whole, this whole funeral and so forth that takes place. Everyone's oh. grieving. And then in the funeral casket, after everyone leaves, the vampire comes, gives him some blood and the guy gets revived and he turns into a vampire and lives a completely different life. And How so, old were you when you read that? Uh, I must have been, been 10 or 11 years old. That is fascinating for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, I love the mythological um, grace that the writer had to have the vampire ask for consent. Mm. That's really interesting. And that's not normal in the vampire motif. So the, mm-hmm. the young person got to choose the initiation. Mm-hmm. And what's brutal about that story is that in order for him to get the transformation, he had to actually feel himself die yeah. and be in the pain 
yeah. and then be brought back. And um, yeah. so one of the things that is like a recurrent theme in the psychoanalytic tradition is that there is a will in the psyche that comes alive when the adolescent, which is like the largest that the psyche can get when it's still in the disposition of child, of like, I have humans above me who are my, who are my gods. Like they dictate what type of path I should lead. That once that, once that part of the developmental growth is achieved, there's this pressure in the psyche to go through an initiatory experience that psychologically severs them from their parents. And there's the quote in the Bible, I forget exactly how it goes, but it's like, it's Jesus saying that in order to follow me, you're going to have to um, turn against your brother, your parents, etc. Mm. And the psychological interpretation of that is, um, if you don't do that, you get that archetype of the like adult boy who still has to call mom and get permission to do X, Y, and Z. And we can all feel in our body that there's something stunted about that. And, you know, I don't know the details of what has happened to you, but you've shared a bit where it seems like that pressure to need to find your own way. Uh, came to you a bit early because of the unsafety of the home and that your psyche was yearning for that type of story. I would love to hear, um, you know, as a practicing psychotherapist yourself, if you looked at that story as a dream that someone would have, that vampire story, that it was a dream that their psyche gave to them, uh, how would you work with it? Mm, interesting. So I'm face-to-face with a client and the client is telling me that I'm having this vampire dream. And how would I analyze that, eh? Yeah. Okay, interesting. The, the interpretation that, that comes up for me, man, is there's... So the person maybe is so defeated or just fed up and overwhelmed with the state of being on an average daily basis that he or she is in. and there's something deep within themselves that is longing for change, that is longing for something different, that maybe a higher intelligence is telling them uh, life doesn't have to be this way. And so they are willing to go to drastic measures, drastic lengths to just have anything be different, to feel any sort of different way, whether it even means to fake their own death and go to such an extreme to cause such intense pain to their loved ones and be okay with the sense of, even if I never see these people again, I need to feel something different. And there is something more for me beyond this average daily feeling. Because, I mean, that person could definitely just succumb to those, I mean, daily average levels of emotions that they are experiencing on a day-to-day basis. And and one could say that that's intergenerational, right? Like, who was to say that that kids' parents aren't struggling with the same emotions on a daily basis themselves. And so that kid, for some reason or another, has this deep calling or this deep willingness within themselves to be like, nah, I don't want to feel this way on a daily basis. And so 
they are willing to do anything and everything to do a complete 180 of their life and be like, I know something else is out there. Yeah. What was your moment? What was your moment where you jumped off the ledge? Uh, my moment where I jumped off the ledge. <laughs> I think my moment where I jumped off the ledge, man, was uh, when I went completely um, against my family's desires because my family is deeply immersed in South Asian cultural traditions, especially like the the Indian Punjabi tradition of must marry within your own, like uh, not only like uh, ethnicity, but also like the same caste and the same like culture and everything. Right. So I had to, the expectation was I had to pretty much only be able to date someone who was Punjabi or Indian themselves. And so I'm like, nah, fuck that. And I started dating a girl who was white, <laughs> which sounds maybe to other people like, damn like that that doesn't sound like a big thing man but for some uh, family deeply traditional to the point where they were just like the guilt the shaming the uh the disappointment in their eyes the uh like it, it almost felt like i was crushing their dreams or their expectations of me and so i i fell in love with this uh girl who was white and i intentionally made the choice to be like yeah fuck culture fuck religion Fuck my family's expectations and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But I got to do this thing. Otherwise, I'm going to live with lifelong regret of what if or anything else that could that could result. So how old I think were that you was it. when you made that choice? I was uh, <laughs> I was I was man, uh, 22 or 23. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's an interesting. So there's a couple of things here. Um, one of my favorite parables is uh, two young fish are swimming in the ocean and an older fish swims by them and says, Hey boys, how's the water? How is the water today? And the two young fish stop and they look at each other and one asks, what's water? Mm. And I love this idea of there are a lot of things that we experience that are so fundamental to our experience that we can't see them unless we like wake up to them because they're just so close to us. And because, you know, most of the people listening to this podcast are, um, they grew up inside of the Western tradition, whether or not they are, you know, quote unquote, the right race or whatever the fucking thing is. Like we are all the, the children of this um, philosophical tradition. And at the root of it is that, the individual should be sovereign mm -hmm. and that it gets to make choices that um, cannot be restrained uh, too much by culture. Mm -hmm. And that one of the major like literary genres that really gave this idea a fire that allowed it to break through a lot of traditions was actually the birth of the quote unquote romantic story. And so the first one, uh, I forget the name, but it was a poem that was written like Tristan and Isambul or something like that. I think I'm saying the female's name wrong and I apologize, but it was a poem that uh, birthed the idea that two people 
could choose their love for each other over tradition and rules and any type of artificial barrier. And that uh, there are lots of traditions in the world that do not prioritize that psychological freedom. That if your heart demands it, you are bound to do it. Whereas there's a lot of cultures that have their own histories where uh, they have found, you know, through generation after generation of their artists and philosophers and political figures trying to work through their ideas, they have found that, no, subjugating, that's the wrong word, um, choosing to sacrifice the individual will to the collective will is actually the right way to orient a culture. Right. And that when those cultural traditions make contact with like the fire that's burning at the core of whatever the Western like uh, philosophical tradition is, it's like w- once you touch that fire, it tends to burn wood and wood tends to be uh, traditions that have lost the fire that eventually or that originally made them. Like an example would be there are ideas at the core of Christianity that when that was a living tradition, the fire burned so deeply that it transformed the lives of millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people. And yet when I was a child and the church that I went to, no one that I met who was teaching any of these stories had any fire in them. And as a child, I got this like artificial husk of a thing that they were telling me was alive. And I was like, you're holding a skull. Like there's no fire there. And um, I would love to know, like, how did you navigate that period where like you could feel that in the nervous system of people that you loved, that you shared blood and genes with, that they almost felt like you were like, what's the right word? Like, um, like defecating on their, uh, like tradition of on that you were desecrating their God. Yeah. Yeah. What what you said uh, about growing up with Christianity and stuff, it really resonates with me, with me because it was, a, it was a, a similar sentiment for me of, it felt like everything was being forced down my, my mind or my throat. Like I would, I would, I remember cause uh, this is leading into the, the answer to your question, which is, um, I remember as a child just growing up and always feeling forced, always feeling helpless, always feeling like there were expectations on me to be a certain way, to think a certain way, to to align or conform to a certain way. And so I'd be forcefully taken to like the temple, like every single weekend, let's say, even though I didn't want to go, I wanted to play with my friends. Or uh, there would be fear instilled within me that I was going to have nightmares if I did not allow my grandparents to read me religious stories or religious myths before bed. Wow. And Right. And so when I, like, I, I had this deep sense of like, 
like, I don't know, do I buy into this? Do I not buy into this? Is But then when I got old enough to, and I started individuating and I started actually making my own mind up about things and experiencing different cultures and different uh, people's ways of living and interpreting the world, then I really got to reflect on how a lot of it was fear-based. Like all these things was just fear-based instead of genuine respect, motivation, willingness-based. Yeah. And so, right. And so I, I didn't see anyone within the culture or religion that really had that fire burning within them that I would just encounter them and I would be lit on fire as well. Like, no, it was just, it was just a forcefully power-driven, like top-down thing. And so growing up, I had a deep embedded sense of there is something wrong with the way I feel and I'm not buying into this. And there have been so many years of my family trying for me to buy into this, but it's not working. So what the hell is going on? And then when I got old enough and I started uh, really reading about religion and, and culture and listening to like different podcasts and stuff, then I started thinking about like how all this shit is just like systems made that maybe served people at one point or one era. And then uh, the world needs to change and beliefs need to change. And so I had to fucking, I had to quit being like just a whiner about like, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel this? Why do I feel this way? And just starting to have the courage to make my own independence and my own be, be like I own my own man in a sense. And so I, I remember meeting this girl and I remember everything about her lit me up. And like her, her, her smile, her radiance, her beauty, like the way she was talking, everything, her values. And, and I'm like, holy shit, like this girl, the more I'm getting to know her, the more I'm falling in love with her. And yet, what is the reason that I'm not willing to take the step? Because, okay, fear of disappointing my parents, fear of, well, I, like mostly this guilt, which, which uh, of course, like is driven by some fear mechanism, but the guilt around, I'm not only guilt, but also extreme shame around, I, I'm like the disappointment of the family. I'm the one that didn't conform. Look at all my cousins. Everyone's conforming. Look at all my friends. Everyone's conforming. But I am like the black sheep and I'm not conforming and I have this deep sense of I'm the problem. And then I, I'm starting to think about shit of like, what, what the hell? So I'm convincing myself that I'm the problem and there's something inherently wrong with myself just because I want to date someone outside of the damn culture that's a different skin color than me. And there was something so inherently wrong about that that just did not align with my values that I was like, okay, fuck this, I have to take the leap and I have to prove something to myself. At that point, yes, it was about the girl, but it was also about proving something to myself because I wasn't proud of the person that I was up until that point. Like I, even in high school and stuff or elementary school, like I had very low self-esteem and uh, just was very shy, introverted, uh, very scared of things and so forth. And so there wasn't a lot for myself up until that point to be really proud, inherently proud of myself. And I was just fed up. Um, so I was like, if I take this leap and I conjure up the courage within myself to be like, fuck these systems and I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. And I have to explore what's on the other side. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I cannot for the life of me live with any more sense of what if or a regret or a sense of not being proud of myself. And so there was this deep clash between Western values and, and uh, Eastern values, uh, like individualistic versus collectivistic of like family orientation and like conforming and respecting family versus 
uh, autonomy and like prioritizing your own health, happiness and well-being over over uh, the collective well, well-being when needed. And so navigating that was fucking intense. I mean, I had to go through certain addictions because, uh, again, I was just see- seeking these crutches and a lot of lying in the relationship where I'm like, yeah, yeah, like my, uh, I'll, I'll overcome family for you. Don't worry. Don't worry. Well, we got this. When deep in my heart, I was still scared of my family's like uh, the way that they would be handling these things. Um, so the desperation, I guess, became deep enough and profound enough and in my face blunt enough that I just couldn't ignore that this is the fucking tipping point between do I turn into a man who I'm proud of or do I succumb and I just continue being parentified and conforming even though deeply I know I'm not satisfied with my life. One of the things that comes to mind that feels like it's something that I'm trying to navigate and try to learn how to articulate is there's a nature-based psychotherapist named Bill Plotkin that I am absolutely enamored by, by the sophistication and the elegance of his developmental model of the human psyche. And that um, it feels like there's a third way between the individualistic culture and the collectivistic culture. And it's that a function of a healthy, adaptive family is that it gives the children the physiological, emotional, and philosophical foundations to when they get to the right point in their development, that they get to go enter into the world as an individual and explore it on their own. And that that transition is marked by a gathering of the quote-unquote family or the community and the children who reach that age, which would be like mid-adolescence, go through an initiation that ends the life of the first life where they were a child and that the proper orientation was family to now a genuine adolescent who is to go out into the world and to make their own mistakes, learn their own lessons, but that eventually it's to get to the point where they can come back to the community and revivify aspects of it based off of what it had learned being an individual. And then they become a father or a mother or some type of archetypical steward to the next generation that comes out of the community. And in Western culture, there's been like a severe disconnection from the fundamental requirement of the human being of community with capitalism and consumerism and our individualistically oriented culture. We can survive, quote unquote, with not knowing our neighbors, not knowing our farmers, not knowing any of the people that make any of the things that we do. And to be in the in this concept, you know, quote unquote, nuclear family that was an aberration coming out of, you know, war times, that the healthy configuration of the family level in Western culture was like five people inside of a home. And that in the Eastern cultures, there's like 
it is hard to allow the individuation or the pursuit of the individual's dharma in a in a culture that um almost demands that you subjugate your individual dharma to the dharma of the collective and i can't speak on it because i haven't lived in those cultures enough to really honorably steel man um why it works because clearly it does work well enough for massive cultures of billions of people to be able to operate you know with each other but that this like third way as pointed out by plotkins at least seems to be the way of the next you know movement in at least the west which is this idea of um we are starting to become aware of how sick we become when we don't genuinely have a community. We don't genuinely have like a quote unquote tribe or a, you know, it's not just your biological family, but like the people that you both depend on and give your service to and exchange time with and can lean on when things get hard and that you help them when they go through hardship. And that the function of your individualistic adventure is to eventually come back to the community and um, improve it. Right. right. And, and inherently in that, man, for, for that to happen even is there, there has to be a self-willingness. Like there has to be a self-willingness to want to come back to the culture or the family or the, mm. the structure, right? Because... It, there, I find that deeply embedded in, uh, especially my culture, I can't speak to all of, uh, Eastern cultures or collectivist cultures, but especially in my culture, um, there's a sense of expectation or a sense of uh, forced respect. Like, uh, you're, my, you're my child. Yes, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be the traditional parent like the other parents are where you know what? Okay, I'll be cool a little bit. You can you can venture outside of the household. I won't burden you with the expectation of conforming with family. Okay, so go into the world, do your thing. But you better fucking come back. And I expect you to come back within this timeline. And I expect you to come back having seen certain results. And that was part of my storyline for a bit where I, like, especially in my culture, there's a sense of, like, there's three generations living in a household, uh, a very tight-knit sense of family of like us against the world and and that kind of thing and don't disappoint the family you're the honor you have to uphold the honor and the status of the family and you're the next person who's going to be the head and so forth and so the only time I, I was able to individuate from that was when I went to study for my master's and my uh post-grad with and I had to move across the country or I, actually I wanted to move across the country but even then there was a sense of when you come back, you better show us certain results. And I didn't want to come back to the family structure at that point. There was no mm. self-willingness, right? And so there is something, I think, to be said around if you genuinely give someone the free will and you help develop and foster their sense of how, are, how can I truly serve you in taking the steps to align with your specific individual dharma or purpose? Like then that self-willingness or that engagement or that deep, deep, deep respect is formed rather than 
a sense of forced respect or a sense of fear or a sense of uh, if you don't do this, then I'm just going to be ashamed of you. Right. There's there's something else motivating that I think that seems icky to me. And I I, it never really. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to feel into um, like I'm genuinely ecstatic to be a father one day and to feel into like how can I be a gardener to my children's dharma and see that as my dharma in that um you know what slings and arrows of outrageous fortune will find its way to me through genuinely bowing before whatever type of plant they want to become and that um you know the hu- the universe tends to have a sense of humor especially for the parts of us that were rigid and i'm curious like what type of dharma lessons will find their way to me through the like spiritual level commitment of i am here to facilitate the blossoming of the type of plant that you're meant to be and that that might not be anything like what my identity or my ego will want you to be and that um like one of the things that i'm personally trying to work out I actually wrote a newsletter about it today, but I started writing a book when I was 23 and I have this uh, huge box of over a thousand note cards of um, all these different quotes and ideas from different books and they're organized inside of chapters. And I was, I was trying to write a philosophy book for philosophers with, you know, like 800 citations. That's kind of the type of book that I was trying to write. Mm. And um, I eventually got my dream job at Onnit four years ago. And once I got that job, I stopped working on this book. But I've carried around the box that all these note cards are in with me to every house that I've gone to since then. And um, I had an experience about a month ago in ayahuasca where I had a really clear vision where I was like teaching, quote unquote, the game of life to my daughter. And she was like five. And it was like, Homeschooling feels like a weird phrase. Like it feels like me being me is that I'm going to be answering questions and being in co-fascination with my kids all of the time. But it will, you know, amount to in the eyes of the state, I guess, as homeschooling. But I was seeing myself like teaching everything that I knew to my child And like it did this alchemy for me where it's like my daughter doesn't want citations and she doesn't give a fuck about like the technicalities. Like she wants me to play with her. Like she wants to play games and she wants to learn, you know, like children are inherently curious. And um, I'm now revisiting that big ass box to try to transform it into like how would I teach this to my children? And that the essence of the whole thing is like, you're a fish in water and I want to show you what water is. I want to show you how to swim. And I'll go explore the ocean with you. And there's 
very scary things in the ocean and there's very beautiful things in the ocean. And um, you're going to find your dharma out there too. And so the reason I bring that up is like, I'm trying to actively work out uh, in the face of a terrifying infinite immensity that we call the universe or reality. Uh, what is the best way to quote unquote teach my child in a way where they get to manifest their dharma and I can bear the fragility that's inherent in watching your child leave the confines of the known and your home and to go There's this quote, I forget who it's by, but it's like, maybe the ultimate heroic act in the Bible is actually Mary. That she gave her child a way to be crucified by the world. You know, and that there's some poet uh, that I can't remember, but she said something like, and that's what all mothers do. You know, and so... I bring that up to bring up like at the core of the imposition of the rigidity of the tradition that our parents give us at its core is their terrified fear that they're going to watch their child go be crucified by life. Right. And they think that their tradition can protect their child. Yeah. That a sense of known or predictability or a sense of, what I've experienced and I know will come for my kids, if I can just control those conditions enough, then, then they, it's, it's, a, it's a, a weird thing, right? Because even in growing up with my family, I, I, I mean, it took me a while, man, to be honest, like uh, late in my adolescent or early adulthood where I'm like, okay, I can start to have a sense of empathy or a sense of understanding for my parents' intentions. And I was finally able to break free from like, okay, my parents aren't these evil, strict, uh, controlling type of people. They just want what's best for me in the, the, what I seem as, uh, what I see as twisted kind of ways of protecting me in a sense. And so they're trying to control life to such a deep degree where the, <laughs> I mean, control is seen as safety in their psyche, right? So if I control it enough, if I, if I'm strict enough, if I place too many, so many expectations enough, if I, if I predispose my children towards the life that I think they should live in the way that. I think they should live it, then they'll be safe. Then they'll be able to do these things that I wasn't able to do. Then they'll be able to come up in uh, or not experience my shortcomings. And so it's a thing of like, it's, it's positive in a sense intentions, but the, the impact is completely being lost, right? And so I, like to your point, when you were talking, what, what it brought up for me was, what the hell does it take in a parent? What are the, the requirements for a parent to really get to a place where even like Mary, like I, I'm able to let my kid go and be crucified or it, myself as a parent, like I don't have a kid yet, but uh, hopefully soon where myself as a parent, I'll be at a place where I'm, I'm, I don't know what that would be. I'm embodied enough. I'm uh, confident enough or I've done enough self-work to actually be like, however my kid chooses to live life, 
I will be there as support. I will be there as a safety net. But at the same time, I want to push them in these certain ways. While at the same time balancing, they are a completely unique, free individual being. And I shouldn't place any expectations on them. Like This is something I go back and forth a lot in my work with parents as well, where I work with a lot of fathers. And we have these conversations about like how many expectations is too many expectations or uh, how much uh, I remember talking to you uh, about this a couple of weeks ago or a week ago, where uh, what is the, the required level of fear versus respect that is maybe necessary or not necessary in a father child relationship. And so it's, it's very interesting where there's, it seems to be a fine line between certain constructs where Yes, expectations are good where, okay, I, I want to be a father where I want my child to do well in school, let's say. I, but at the same time, if they don't do well in school, that's not the end of the world either. So I want to be in that boat. But to want them to do well in academics, I, I feel like that's an okay expectation to have. But at what point does that cross over into like too much of an expectation? And now they're, they're I'm taking away or I'm not doing my duty as their father to truly uh, motivate them or push them towards living in align, alignment with their own dharma, right? Yeah, the thing that comes up is any advice that does not point back to the answer being listening mm. gets in the way. And so what I mean by that is the metaphor that comes to mind is if you're a gardener and you have a plant, you're learning about what that plant is asking for by listening through observing and showing up to it every day. And some plants might demand a lot of attention, a lot of pruning, a lot of watering. They'll have a lot of offshoots that die, many different stems. And then maybe there's a cactus. That's one stock that's hardy, that needs almost no water. And it's just growing and thriving with very little feedback from you. And that like children are individuals that we have never seen the combination of their genes meeting this environment in the entire history of life before, and it will never happen again. Any heuristic that you have for how to raise them that doesn't involve deeply listening on a day-to-day -day basis is likely to give you a result where their reflection to you when they're older was that you actually didn't see them, you know, and that there's going to be pain to work through. But fundamentally, it comes down to what I imagine is listening. And again, don't have kids. So I might be a hypocritical fucking mess of a suggestion. But if I'm steel manning my position um, from the age of 10 till about 14, um, I was the male caretaker for my youngest sister. And um, I got to hold a baby, change diapers, feed, look over it, help it you know, help her go to sleep, help her navigate when she fell over and when she hit her knee and things like that. So um, I think I have a little bit of an intuition. Yeah, yeah. 
there's a there's a saying that comes up for me, and I'm probably going to butcher this quote, but um, like you got to do the work to not pass on trauma or disguise as culture, and as even wow. as you're, right, like you got to do the work to not pass on trauma disguised as culture, which is so fucking hidden. Like, and so even as you're talking, it's like yeah, the culture of parenting. Let's say, like th- there's so much trauma in the idea of how we should parent, and not only doing, I mean. For us to parent in the way that we're talking about and have like a deep sense of listening and prioritize their, like prioritize a very child-centered way of parenting rather than a self-centered way of parenting, which involves, I mean, getting over my biases, doing the work to know where my blind spots are, uh, like reflecting on my own sense of uh, having been, been parented and how that is likely in very unconscious ways to be passed on to my own children, even in very, very subtle ways of like, how am I responding to conflict and how is that being modeled to my child? Right. And like, for example, for myself, sometimes, man, I would be in conflict with my partner. And before I knew it, like I I would all of a sudden, like I would kind of like phase out or I'd mentally check out. And then when I'd tune back into the present moment again, I'd be on the street going for a walk or something. And I'm like, how, how did I get here? It was a very weird thing. And so I would reflect back and I'd be like, oh man, we, I was arguing with my partner and then I said, fuck this, or I said, screw this. And I just stormed out and here I am on this walk. And why am I doing this? Why am I not able to have a clear uh, communicative conversation with my partner in that moment instead of just storming off like this and being flooded. And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that's that's very resemblant of how I saw my father handle conflict from an early age. And so without that self-reflexivity, I, I think all this stuff is just going to be disguised as trauma and then be passed on intergenerationally. And I mean, it's easier said than done, but at the same time, that, that quote really resonates with me. Yeah, and what I love is um like i see the image of like a tree growing all these branches that have all these leaves and that like to feel the branch that our parents grew out of and the you know i'll just speak for my family but like the callousness and the and the violence and the addictions that my parents as children had to navigate. That even though there was no idea or no concept of quote unquote doing the work, they did enough of their quote unquote work that the childhood that they gave me would be a heaven compared to the childhood that Mm -hmm. both of them had. Mm -hmm. And that each of their children have this opportunity to uh continue that momentum and like one of the things to feel into is at least for me you know the hundreds and hundreds of people that i've quote unquote worked with and worked alongside and i got to hear their stories and connect to you know their traumas and their pain none of them i haven't heard one story yet where their parents parents weren't an order of magnitude more hurt and more twisted than what their parents were to them. And that there's a really beautiful like frame shift to connect to there, which is that my parents actually did the work 
to put the momentum in my favor in a way that is truly miraculous because they didn't have the internet. They didn't have all of these books and studies and like renaissance of the psychedelic culture that is now being used to help people heal PTSD. Like they didn't have any of that. Yeah. And yet they not only were able to, um, you know, not abuse me the way their parents abused them, but we were also able to make road trips without Google Maps, which still to this day blows my mind. <laughs> right. It, it's, uh, it resonates uh, with uh, another saying that I've heard where it's, again, I'm going to butcher this, but it's like the, the purpose of parenting is to acknowledge the amount of sharp tools that we've been passed down and to decrease the number of sharp, sharp tools that we pass down to the next generation. And that, that really vibes with me because it's like what's, it really, it hyper-focuses me into what's in my control. And the purpose isn't, okay, I need to be this perfect father, which I don't think there is such a thing. We're going to have certain shortcomings or things that we're not aware of. But it, the idea isn't to have zero sharp objects that we're passing down. It's to make peace that we're going to pass down to a certain number of sharp objects for our kids to hold but to do our damn best in reducing them as much as possible to what's in our, in our, in our control. Cause you're right. I'm looking at my grandparents. Oh man, my grandpa, like he struggled with uh, uh, like uh, abuse in his relationship towards his wife, struggled with abuse towards his, his children, struggled with alcoholism, struggled with a whole bunch of things. And then compared to the number of things that my father has passed down to me, like that's, that's very negligible in a sense. And so it's really easy. And I, I, oh man, like I, I wish, like I, I really don't resonate with the idea of having regret because uh, like I've heard you guys say, like you and Aubrey and so forth, uh, regret is basically uh, not acknowledging that you did the best you could at any given time, right? And so, but if I could get a, t a time machine and go back, I'd be like, okay, like, I know I have a certain number of complaints or a certain number of uh, whatever, like resentments towards my father and my family. But at the same time, he's not this evil man. Like, he's, he's doing his best given what he knows, given what he has, given what he's been passed down. And he's doing his damn best. And that understanding did not come in for me until my early 20s. And my my relationship with my dad still is rocky to this day because we're still recovering from that. And that recovery involves a sense of continuously jumping or teleporting into his mindset and giving him the benefit of the doubt of he is a truly like humble and well-intentioned man who just doesn't know any better. And I think a lot of people, and I mean, personally speaking, a lot of my clients that I've worked with, they truly miss that sense of connection with that with that parent figure or anyone um, for that matter of if I put myself into their psyche, into their intentions in this moment, can I give them the benefit of doubt that they're doing the best given what they know and what they have and let go of this idea that I expect them to be better than where they're at right now? Because I truly feel like that's shaming them. And then they're, they're then going to feel that shaming that you're projecting onto them. And they're going to get defensive and then they're going to shame you back. And it becomes this damn like hot potato of who can shame each other the most, right? And which really damages, I mean, personally speaking, it damaged my connection with my father. But that's one of the only things that I, if I had a time machine, I'd go back and be like, I, I see you for the pain that you've been passed down 
and I see the efforts and the the well intentions that you have in trying to mitigate as much as possible the pain that you're passing down onto me. And uh, yeah, yeah, a thing that comes to mind. I'm going to see if I can articulate this because it breaks some of our most fundamental models about like time and causality and shit. But um, I would offer the perspective that the archetypical yearning to wish to have a time machine to go back in time and to redo a thing is a archetypical motif that has been in our cultural imagination for a while. And maybe the most famous example of it is A Christmas Carol, where Scrooge got to, like, an angel came to him and made him see what his future would be if he didn't change now. Mm. And that by putting his imagination into the future, he was able to have a transformation in the present that changed the rest of his life. I have had a few experiences where. I've gotten into an altered state of consciousness, either through breath work or psychedelics that then allowed me to use the model of parts work, like internal family systems, to reconnect to a memory where either I or the other acted in a way that was traumatizing in the moment. And as the individual I am now, I go back to that moment and I either talk to the younger version of me or I talk to either my mom or my dad as they were in that moment, as me now, and create a memory through the active imagination of being in this space that actually changes my past in a way that changes the way that I interact with them now, where functionally, psychologically, I did go back in time. And the magic of it is to the point that you brought up that our nervous systems are so incredibly good at being able to sense the intention of the other. And if we can feel that their intention is to shame or to judge, like your nervous system on some level is still in the past with him in a way that his current self still feels. And it keeps that part of his past alive as well. And that I've had a direct experience with some people close to me in my family where after doing one of these like time traveling, imaginal experiences where I alchemized like a trauma, that the way that I showed up in the present moment was as if I did change the past because my nervous system was interacting with them at a nonverbal level that was radically new for them, that allowed them to be current with me. It allowed them to unconsciously be in the present moment, which was brand new. And we were able to get to a new, you know, like if you imagine your conversations with your family members are like these well-traveled paths that you just like, oh, we're going down this fucking path again. It's going to end in an argument that by doing this work, I was able to walk down new paths that were more beautiful. Um, And so I just want to offer that time travel 
I think is possible, but it's not with any machine other than your nervous system and it can have real profound effects now. But I want to change gears and I want to um, move to, you know, because we're two men who don't have children talking a lot about how to be a parent. And like, <laughs> I think that we spoke on it well, but it's worth shifting gears. And I want to connect to um, what was your like story about uh, becoming a psychotherapist and what models did you study and that you use now? Yeah. Uh, my story about becoming a psychotherapist was I tried to, well, actually, the initial curiosity started when I had my first mindfulness experience. And I remember being in my one of my psych classes in undergrad studies and uh, a pr- professor just says, hey, we're going to do something for five minutes called mindfulness. And I'd never heard of the term in my life. Um, and so I'm engaging with this exercise. And after just five minutes of this practice, man, holy shit. Like I, I've always been someone who's, who's very much defaulted to thinking and being hyper in my head and hyper logical and hyper imaginative. And again, like before I use the word escapism, but you're right. Like the reframing has to be uh, somewhat softer. Like I, I, I really resonate with it being a defense mechanism or it being just a, a way of coping or a crutch or a tool that I was using to really uh, bear the tension for, on an everyday basis growing up in my house. And so I was hyper in my head, completely disconnected from my body. And so after five minutes of this damn practice, I, zero thoughts. First experience in my, in my life where my mind is completely shut off and I'm actually feeling my body on every color. It, it, it really felt like I was on drugs and every color is vibrant. And so that altered state of consciousness to me really just catapulted my curiosity for what the hell is out there in the world that I don't know that I still I want to explore so deeply and it got me interested in consciousness it got me interested in uh, taking more psychology courses in the field of cognitive psychology and not only mindfulness but um, taking seminars where I did research projects on meditation and well-being and so forth and everything just kind of aligned in uh, I guess like the perfect storm of using my analysis or loving analyzing things and loving people watching and loving thinking about why people act the way they do and how does their childhood affect that and from my own self-reflection of course of witnessing um, like abuse within my uh, parental relationship and how that affected me and how that affected my relationships in adulthood and so that curiosity and that passion just kind of catapulted me into being a psychotherapist Um, and the modalities that I really gravitated towards I mean with my initial experience with mindfulness, I really gravitated towards acceptance and commitment therapy where they're really big on mindfulness, they're big on diffusing from your thoughts, they're big on uh, analyzing the way in which you avoid certain feelings um, and just creating like a, a, a new, uh, it's kind of like what we were talking about before about like just uh, watching the clouds pass by and not getting hooked on the, or fused with the thoughts. And so that was really interesting. I also branched out further from that into narrative therapy by Michael. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. So, and that was big about the stories that we tell ourselves, right. And so the problem saturated story that we're fused with, and can you detach from that problem story just a little bit and look for the exceptions to your storyline and just in doing that and thickening or, or really focusing and deepening those alternative or exception stories to where the problem was not existent you can really start to create a new narrative and a new story for yourself. 
And so I love that. And now I'm getting into internal family systems work. So Game changer. Yeah. <laughs> game changer. Definitely. Narrative psychology was something that um, is one of the ones that I resonate with the most. And what brought me to that was actually studying the expressive writing literature. And um, what brought me to that was studying cognitive behavioral therapy. So kind of the like path there is uh, David Burns, maybe his name is Aaron Burns, I forget. Uh, he wrote um, Feeling Good, which was a book that taught cognitive behavioral therapy. And what they found a couple of years after that book came out, that um, I believe a researcher from Alabama did a study and found that giving people that book was on average more effective at reducing their scores on depression tests than classic clinical intervention. And they dubbed the term bibliotherapy, which is that a book can be written well enough where it is actually therapeutic in a measurable way that's greater than the baseline interventions that we currently have. or And that was at least true when they did the experiment. I think it was back in the 90s. And then uh, that got me really inspired where it was like, I can, it is possible to create something where the creator is not present and the creation can be measurably therapeutic on the human consciousness that interacts with them. And I was like, that's cool. And um, <clears throat> that brought me to studying the research on expressive writing, which is, um, that was made famous by uh, <clears throat> James Pennebaker. And he did, uh, he either did directly or oversaw hundreds of studies on the effectiveness of, if you write stream of consciousness for four days, for 20 minutes each day over a traumatic experience that happened um, much earlier in your past, that all of these different biological markers improve. You sleep better, you go to the doctor less. Uh, if you have an autoimmune disorder or arthritis or any, or even PTSD, that the subjective experience of those symptoms decrease. And um, as I was trying to work out like what type of thing I would want to make that could have that type of healing effect, it brought me to narrative psychology. Mm -hmm. But internal family systems is the thing that I have found the last couple of years that um, it requires the least amount of explanation to facilitate a transformation in a single conversation with a person that I use it on. And that there is nothing else in psychology that I have found that is as elegant as doing internal family system type dynamics because I barely have to explain it. Like I was at a point at one point where I would have um, four to six coaching calls a day each one would be half an hour and I would do maybe like 30 in a week. And that uh, the only thing that could pierce the veil in that time period would be doing parts work. And then I didn't have to explain what it was. Like it was essentially asking them how they are and just listening. 
listening for where there's a pain point, you know, cause like in the container of I'm talking to a coach, I'm going to tell them where I'm struggling. And then just asking them, um, if you went off of your intuition, how old does that anger feel? Or how old does that frustration feel? Like what age is it? 10 out of 10, they instantly have an age. And then I'd ask them, um, just going off of your intuition, uh, what does that age look like? Like, if that's you, what is their posture? What are they wearing? What is their nonverbal communication with you? And then I ask them, you don't need to tell me, but can, can you connect to what happened for you at that age? And the super powerful thing about internal family systems is that you don't need them to tell you the story. They can just hold it in them and then you can guide them to a place where they can make contact with that part and they talk to that part. And there's some techniques that you can do that will allow for like massive breakthroughs. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what has been your experience with internal family systems? And also just for people listening, I think most of the people listening know, but how would you explain what internal family systems is? Yeah, so uh, I've been using it for about uh, half a year now. But in my experience in the half a year is in, in, the, in the therapy process, I think a good therapist is very much attuned for how can I facilitate the self-healing of the client? And I, I mean, I, I've worked with many therapists myself. Like I've been in therapy as a client and so forth. And I mean certain therapists lack that lens and what happens is you end up being dependent on them you end up being dependent on them to guide you with certain questions you end up being dependent on them to uh, be there for you to regulate your emotions for yourself and so forth and so in turn ifs i think is really good at yes i'm going to ask you a certain number of questions but these are pretty much like simple questions that you can ask yourself whenever you want on your own time as well and so even like the time machine thing that you talked about, you went back and you asked yourself and you facilitated your own self-healing without any external third-party figure to help guide you or to be there for you as a crutch. And so one thing that I think I, uh, not I think, but I, I really love about IFS is it empowers the client. And, and, and it, it seems to like, I would say 10 out of 10, my experience with IFS with my clients has been in the shortest amount of sessions possible than I've seen with other modalities such as CBT, such as uh, narrative or, or act, or uh, I've worked a little bit with uh, Adlerian as well. Um, in the shortest number of sessions, it seems to give them a confidence or a self-love or an empowerment to tackle their issues and have a faith of if I get into conflict or some type of internal struggle in the future, I know the process of how to make peace within myself and how to remember my parts in a sense. And, and so, yeah. What has been an experience that you've had as a psychotherapist where something that arose for one of your clients forced you to update one of your models about how to help people? Oh, interesting. Something about my client forced me to update my model about how to help people i i think it goes hand in hand with what i've been saying man like of of uh the the idea of not so 
within myself, I've had to, as a therapist, overcome this. Uh, I think it's been like this internal struggle, or there might be this bias within myself that I look to prove my intelligence to people around me. Yep. And so, even to clients, I can very easily step into this trap of I'm going to be the therapist that saves you. I'm going yeah. to be the therapist <laughs> that that is this damn like white knight figure that comes riding in on a damn horse and picks you up and is your is your hero in a sense because to me that's going to prove to myself that I am competent that I am capable enough and that I've I I'm living in accordance with my unrealistically high expectations of myself and that I'm intellectually superior to others around me in some type of way and that's been a bias I really have to had to grapple with myself and so with clients I've like I, I I look on some experiences with certain clients where I've worked with them for two years. I've worked with them for three years, and I'm thinking to myself, like, how much of that time period was me being self-centered in some unconscious way, and maybe even sometimes conscious way of like I would I just want to like I know you're talking right now about your struggles, but I'm gonna say I'm gonna try to conjure up the magical thing to say to make you respect me as a therapist, like that kind of thing. And and so I've really had to shift between fostering a dependency on my clients onto me versus I am in this healing container sitting in this room with you, and my entire intention is to be a mirror to reflect back to you in a way where you develop the self-reliance and the self-sufficiency to be your own white knight for yourself. And that has been a hell of a process for me to change, but the more intentional I've gotten with it and the more intent, more clients I've had to really come face to face with this internal shame within myself of like, man, I, I probably wasted so much of their money, so much of their resources, so much of their time when really their issue, I, if I really focused and honed in on myself better and more accountably, I, they could have been out of my office in five, six sessions with, with uh, if I tackled their issue in this certain way or this certain lens. And yeah, That's an incredible piece of self-awareness to connect to. And I just want to commend it. And that the model that I've um, have held when it comes to psychotherapy is um, I believe that each of us has uh, what I like to call it a daemon um, that's based off of the Greek lineage, but many cultures have many different words for it. Genius, soul, uh, the Holy Spirit, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that each of us has a, I think the word that people intuitively grasp is a conscience. And that uh, many of us, most people who end up in psychotherapy, did not have a childhood that mm -hmm. fostered their connection to their conscience to be their guide in life. Mm -hmm. And that if you're physically or emotionally or spiritually abused, or it's not really or, and the most common way is through being lied to or being in the presence of caretakers who their connection to their daemon has been wounded that it disconnects us from the ultimate inner psychotherapist which is our daemon yeah. and that the function of a psychotherapist is to 
hold the steady song of their conscience. And the first stage of that will be that they project onto you their conscience. And that's where they idolize you. And that's what is classically called transference. Right. And that a amateur psychotherapist will fall in love with that feeling yeah. of feeling the other person projecting their conscience or their daemon or their inner other onto you. And that it can become intoxicating and addicting. And that's what's called counter-transference. And uh, when I hear stories of people who have had the same therapist for 10 years or for 20 years, it feels to my intuition deeply wrong. But I don't know the intricacies of their specific dynamics. And so I'm not going to pass judgment on it. But what I've always sought to do and what I've always imagined that the uh resonating model to hold is like a good parent you want to cultivate the individualness of your child enough where they leave you and that on some weird level to succeed as a parent is to fail at being a parent aka that's poetic but it's confusing it's to succeed is to lose your child because they become an individual and an adult And that for a therapist, like you succeed when they leave and they don't come back. Right. And that that's been the, uh, that like, that's the hero's journey for the psychotherapist is to learn how to, uh, reflect in a way where they leave. Exactly. And, and one thing that I think even just going back to your question about what, what do I think makes IFS really effective? I, I love the idea in IFS of the, of the self with the capital S yep. because the idea becomes, I have to be grounded within my own healing capacity, which only comes from my capital S self. And only when I am grounded enough in that mode, can I truly enact as a healing figure or a co-healer rather with this person in front of me because me me striving to be intellectually superior than someone else or me um looking uh to fill my void of emptiness that stems from somewhere that is going to be uh filled with this client coming back to me again and again because they need me in a sense like that is not my capital s self man that's my lowercase s self and so If I am truly embodied in the higher intelligence of of myself and I'm not blinded by these biases, blinded by these these, uh, trying to fill up these empty needs and so forth, only then can I truly enact in a way where my energy itself is transmuting some type of healing to this other person. And I've been in sessions where um, for example, like the, the client's really struggling with something, disclosing something traumatic. And all I'm doing is I'm just listening. And by the end of the 50 minutes of the session, the client gets up, pays their fees. And I'm like, shit, man, like I, 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 didn't, I didn't even really do anything. And so I check in with them and I'm like, how has the session been with you? And to my surprise, like the, the client will be like, this was profound. And I've had that happen on many occasions where I'm in my head about, I, I didn't really do anything except actively listen and reflect back a couple of things, but they were mostly talking and venting and so forth. 
And so how, like, how am I going to justify them paying $100 for the session, them paying $150 for the session and so forth? I feel like I'm robbing them of their money just for them at the end of the session to be like, this was profoundly healing. And when I dissect that a little bit more and more, in those moments, there is truly something healing about beyond words, beyond thought, just a sense of deeply being in someone's presence where they're anchored in the moment and they're listening to you in a way of like, I'm listening to you because I truly fucking care about you. I care about the things you are telling me and I do not care about the responses I'm going to formulate as you're telling me this thing. Just because I want to be intellectually superior or I want to be uh, proving my, my worth to myself through these external means, I'm not going to be thinking and my mind's not going to be running in these gears as you're talking to me, as you're ex- expressing your feelings and your sentiments towards me. I'm going to be here in your pain. I'm going to look you straight in the eyes as you talk. And I, my mind is going to be a blank canvas. And now let's go. Tell me what's going on. And it, it, it just it, it baffles me sometimes about how ironic that is or how paradoxical that is in, in some ways of like, I'm not doing much per se, according to my mind. And at the same time, this person is leaving with a profound sense of healing. Compared to, I could be in different sessions where I, I'm responding to them and I feel like I just said like the magical damn thing. I feel like I said like the most intelligent thing that I could have conjured up in response to their statement or their sharing. And then just for them to kind of shut down afterwards and then not come back to me the next session. Yeah. Right? Yeah, the thing that comes to mind is the profound healing and the tragic rarity with which people are fully witnessed by someone who has the nervous system capacity to listen with everything that they are. Like, most of us are the children of parents who were stressed, who were trying to navigate, you know, this culture, their capitalistic requirements, quote unquote, their unprocessed traumas. And it's like, I've never, I have, I don't have a single memory of my dad truly listening to me. I have a couple with my mom, but just those couple with my mom have like, they've instilled a sense in me that at least a part of me is worthy of that. Yeah. And that like, there is an intelligence inside of a seed that with the steady presence of sunlight, it will do all of the work of transformation as long as the sunlight is consistent. Mm. And it feels like it is remarkable how little a human needs of that witnessing sunlight to be transformed and to heal. And it's also tragic that it can be that little and how many people haven't even had that yet. And that like, Like Carl Jung's favorite story, you know, that he retold often at the end of his life was the story of the rainmaker and that Mm -hmm. miracles happen 
when someone gets to be witnessed as they deburden themselves of a secret or a trauma that they've never said to anyone ever. What do, you, what do you think that, if I can pick your brain for a second, what do you think that shift is? Like when someone's coming to, and, and I mean, this can be in the, in the therapeutic realm in an office, or this can be in a, in, a, in a face-to-face conversation at home or with your friend or something like that. What, what do you think the click is of someone deeply expressing something vulnerable and something that they, they have a tough time conveying or expressing to other people, but they're sharing this out loud and they're verbalizing it and they're doing the transition of, repression to expression and now all of a sudden like they they feel lighter or they feel a bit more processed or they feel even without an active solution being conveyed back to them like what do you think that that transition is yeah i think uh one of the waters that we as fish don't realize that we're swimming in is the profundity of the magic of articulated language Like in all of the shamanic traditions that I've had the great fortune to be able to witness masters of those traditions be in, the central focus of the magical healing power of the voice is central to all of the traditions that I've experienced so far. And that there's a couple of things happening at the same time when someone is articulating a secret or something that was repressed. One thing that they're doing is they're getting to put the experience inside of a story and we're deeply storytelling dependent creatures. And that one of the things a story does is it, it extracts out the essence of an experience and that becomes the details of the story and that anything that's not essential is just not remembered. But it also, it places a structure on the experience in a way that resonates with how our memory works. So it's not great for apprehending objective truth if you're trying to be a scientist and that's why we have the scientific method to get past that problem but the mythopoetic story that we're all creating the structure it lives within is the structure of story and so when you articulate something as a story even if it's you know if it took you two minutes to say it something about saying it um, allows the nervous system to use less processing power on trying to categorize what the experience is mm-hmm. and this is what the expressive writing literature really uh, makes clear is just putting something in a story is healing. But then there's this instinctive thing that humans do is if they return to a story, they can't help but to start to extract out the lesson or the moral or the teaching. And that what they have found in the expressive writing work is that by the fourth reiteration of the story, they have their perspective shifts from being the one that was hurt to being the observer of the hurt and the hurt 
her, you know, like the one who did the hurting and the one who got hurt. And that they almost get like a third person narrative perspective on the thing that happened. And that's healing. But also there's this thing that I don't think scientists have yet found a way to really articulate in a scientifically satisfactory way, but that this is something that I have found, especially with MDMA psychotherapy, is that there's an instant physiological tuning that happens when you articulate something, where there's something inside of you letting you know, oh, this part of the story where your voice starts to waver and it almost sounds like you're speaking as a question is your nervous system letting you know that this part of the story, the way that you're telling it, doesn't resonate as truth with you. And so there's something that happens through articulating that doesn't happen through writing that allows you to start to connect with whether or not the music coming through you as your voice is actually resonating with the truth of what you feel. And we don't yet have the scientific categories to really parse out what that is. But then the last part, is that really this isn't the last part because my brain can already go to a couple more places. But the other thing that's big is there's something physiologically taxing about the felt sense of a secret. That it actually, it's almost like physiologically you can feel that there's a predator lurking in your environment that if you make one error it'll kill you like psychologically that's what a secret that's bound in shame and guilt feels like to the psyche and so i think the longer you hold a secret the more the accumulative damage to the physiology grows as your sleep slowly begins to get impaired where your default resting state is not ever really healing because you're always slightly on edge and it can you know 10 or 20 or 30 years with a secret that's bound in shame and guilt is like 10 or 30 years where there's always this felt sense of a tiger hiding behind a corner and if you step out too far you're gonna fucking get snatched and then I think the last part, because, and I'll just stop there because there's even more, but I think that one of the most powerful, like one of the most clinically robustly effective interventions that psychotherapy has found in the last 50 years is what's commonly called exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. And it's that Fundamentally, the thing that you fear, the way that you heal it, is you slowly build the inner resources to face the thing. And then you realize that you're greater than the thing that you feared by facing it. And there's something about articulating the thing that we think is unarticulatable. And then we get to feel that we haven't been annihilated once we've said it, that it actually changes the way that we view ourselves in response to the thing that we were terrified to say. And so we actually get larger through the act of saying it. Yeah, that that makes so much sense. 
Because it, it, I think I think even with psychedelics, that's what one of the reasons why I think they're so profoundly healing is because not only do they give you a third person perspective, but they they make you tap into that feeling or that sense innately of I am bigger than this one story that I'm telling myself. And it might be the only time, like, I mean, personally speaking, when I've done some uh, psilocybin journeys, I, it's and I've been like face to face with an addiction at that point or something like that. That's one of the only times where I get a, a sense of detachment from this really like using the narrative language of a problem saturated story. Like I'm so deeply immersed in these stories about myself all the time. I struggle with this substance. I am this type of person in a relationship. I am this level of competent in my career and so forth, where it's like only when I'm able to have that step back or that sense of diffusing even 1% that I'm able to actually work with it. And now it's this external thing that's in my power to grasp or to work with or to change the way that I'm interpreting it rather than I'm so inherently fused with it. And another point I wanted to make as well was um, there's this, uh, uh, I think it's a theory in cognitive psychology where it's, they talk about the cognitive load and the idea that you only have a finite space in your brain to hold certain information, to hold certain uh, energy, let's say, uh, neurological energy for certain processes to be happening at a certain point in time. So if I am someone who has been deeply entrenched in certain stories about myself, or uh, this person said this to me, or this person did this to me, or uh, th- these are my limiting beliefs about myself and my capabilities and my career and my relationships and blah, blah, blah. And it, the amount of energy that I'm expending on a, on a constant basis cognitively is is and like deeply like just synonymous with the like i can i have the power then to offload some of that energy if i verbalize it right because if i'm driving the same way again and again and again and again now that pathway has become familiar in my brain and in my mind and so it's like this pathway is familiar this pathway is comfortable there are less threats i need to look out for on this path i take to work let's say on a daily basis so now the energy frees up in my mind to think about other things, to ruminate about other things, to, to think about the, the resentments and the hurts that I've experienced in the past or the, the problems in my life that I need to focus on and so forth. And so there's something to be said about that, that finiteness of energy that we have in our brain and how some of that gets offloaded when we verbalize or when we write or when we connect with someone or when we exercise or when we sing or whatever that is, right? One hundred percent, and I think that this is a side note, but to the cognitive load idea, I think one of the most powerful modern healing spiritual wisdom traditions that's masked as a productivity system is David Allen's getting things done. Mm. Have Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. Uh, so there's it's it's kind of an interesting story but there's a he's regarded as like the top of the top when it comes to like uh productivity gurus and his name is david allen and um he gets paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars to go sit with the ceo for two or three days and have them basically collect every open loop in their life and then organize it all inside of a system where Uh, Once you're done, at any given point in your day, you can ask yourself, uh, 
what is the thing of all the things that I know I want to do that is the thing that I want to do right now based off of where I'm at, what tools I have in front of me, how much energy I have and what I'm interested in doing. You go to the system and then you do the thing. And you, you learn to trust the system to be your external brain so that your moment-to-moment -moment consciousness is not trying to remember anything and it can just spontaneously respond in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that the way it's presented to the world is, you know, he's like an old dude in a suit on the front cover of his book and it looks like the type of eye-rolling productivity system that, you know, your dad would love or something. Uh, <laughs> I love it. But that... He did a podcast with Tim Ferriss like a year and a half ago. And basically, uh, the dude had like a spiritual awakening in his 20s, ended up in a um, mental hospital and learned that he basically had to play the game well enough to not be, you know, imprisoned. And then after he got out of the mental hospital by, in his words, pretending to be sane, mm. he then got out in, into the world and realized like, if I just help people organize their brain, I don't have to work a day in my life. Mm. And um, the reason I bring that up is that the reason his methodology is so powerfully transformative is that he teaches modern people how to completely cognitively deload everything that we try to make our brains do now that our brains have not evolved to do. And basically like his main thing is that your brain did not evolve to be an office. Mm. Your brain did not evolve to be a library. The reason we have libraries and the reason that we have offices is because our brains aren't supposed to be like that. Mm -hmm. But most people try to use their brain like it's an office. And the thing that he talks about, and this is based off of really good cognitive psychology experiments, is this idea of an open loop. Have, have you heard of this idea of an open loop? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, so basically, every agreement that you consciously or unconsciously make with yourself about an action you want to do in the world, if you don't have an external system that you trust, your brain feels like it has to hold on to it. And the analogy is it's like the processing power of your nervous system is like a computer. And every open loop that you have is like a tab open up on the browser of your consciousness. Mm. And that the average person has something like 100 to 150 open loops. So like when you walk into a room in your house and the first thing that you think is, oh, I need to do that about that, but then you don't write it down anywhere and you don't do anything about it, that becomes a thing that your psyche feels like it has to track and it costs some yeah. type of energy that's hard for us to measure. Yeah. But that if you learn how to make lists that you trust and you use the magic with a CK of language and symbol and you externalize the inner commitment to a sentence on a piece of paper that you trust you'll come back to, you start to offload and close those browsers. and. Yeah the thing that he has found is like, and I do this all the time when I'm overwhelmed, I know what I need to do is I need to get a piece of paper and I need to write down every open loop that I can possibly think of that my brain is tracking un until I can't think of anything else. And what he has found is the average CEO has like 500. 
And like your brain is overwhelmed. Your sleeping is going to suck. Your regeneration skills of any type of ailment or injury that you have is going to be inhibited. Your likelihood of being burnt out and overwhelmed is going to be so much higher if you have 500 open loops. So I just wanted to, I invite you to check out David Allen's uh, The Art of Getting Things Done. Um, I think that you really love it. But we're coming close to two hours now, so we're, we're, we're going to shift this a bit more to start to land the plane. Um, going forward, uh, what is your vision for your life, like vocation-wise? You shared a bit before the call that you're transitioning from doing individual client work to group client work and also to coaching. I'm curious, like what do you want to create for yourself vocationally for like the next 10 or 20 years? Yeah. Um, in my work now in group work, I work with uh, men who have been uh, referred from the criminal justice system and basically put into this assault response program because they, they face uh, domestic violence charges or partner assault ch- uh, charges. And so basically I take them through these uh, psychoeducational groups where we talk about things like what it means to be a man, what it means to be a leader, what it means to be uh, a healthy father figure and so forth. And so these conversations have really uh, just been motivating me to dive deeper philosophically and just practically about what the hell does it mean to be a man? And in my work with men, I mean, I think I've, I've gained this passion now to maybe work towards holding certain groups or retreats or uh, just outings for uh, men to, including myself, and like I'd be a participant alongside facilitating around guiding them through certain processes and certain initi- initiation rituals to really just transition or, or put the veil off between manhood or between being an adolescent crossing over into adulthood. Because I truly feel like, I mean, in, in, we hear these things, right, about uh, a lot of the, the adults in the world today are actually just grown-up children or, uh, and so forth. And so I, I, really, I really resonate with the idea that society's missing out on these initiation rituals, especially that the indigenous tribes used to have and, or still have and, and so forth. And I think leaning into potentially using psychedelics in the healing work or potentially going into expressive writing or using exercise as a form of healing or leaning into certain healing modalities to transition from like to really exacerbate or to really develop these qualities of what I think are truly necessary for a healthy masculine uh, just really centered in themselves confident in themselves type of man which I think one quality that comes to mind is courage. Another quality that comes to mind is accountability, right? Another quality that comes to mind is knowing how to be a very good leader. And uh, I'm just deciphering really quick between good leader and bad leader. Like just one of the things that makes a leader good, in my opinion, is gaining a truly respect-based following in which they empower the people around them rather than a top-down, fear-driven, um, you-serve-me type of approach. And so how are these qualities going to be fostered within the men in today's society, right? And that's what I'm really honing in on these days. I love that. I can feel that for me personally, based off of where I'm being called to go and the things that I'm being called to share is um, 
It feels like one of the things that our culture has been wounded by for, you know, a couple of generations now is uh, the absence of the of the man who chose to give up being a man to be a father and to have like a present father that chose to be a father who lives their dharma as a father and that it feels like one of the best gifts that we can learn how to give the next generation is um like a generation of mothers and fathers that want to be mothers and fathers yeah. or like caretakers, you know, because we live in a time where there's a lot of different ways where you could actually be a mother or a father or a parent to a child that, um, you know, is not conventional, but you still are the primary regulating nervous system to the next generation. And that, um, I admire that you feel called to help men step into really being men. And I can feel that I'm called to, um, like the thing that I'm playing with is it's like, I'm enjoying the feeling of sacrificing being a man to being a father. And that it feels like there is a transformation that happens where it's like, uh, not every man will be a father and not every man will, and not every man who has a child chooses to give up being a man to be a father, you know, right. like it's, it's almost like we, we don't have a word for it, but like archetypically it would be the difference between the maiden and the mother. Whereas for men, you know, like the only word that we really have for it is like bachelor, but that feels like that misses the right. archetypical potency. But so most adults aren't actually adults. You know, they're, they're children or really they're teenagers in 30 or 40 or 50 year old bodies. Yeah. So there's a, require or there is a deep need in our generation for adolescents to step into the archetypical developmental stage of man or woman but it also feels like it's not necessarily a higher stage but i think it's a branching stage where uh hers also like after you step into being a fully individuated man or woman is to step into choosing to be a mother or a father. Mm. And so mm. that's currently where I'm playing at. Okay. All right. The landing question is, I invite you to imagine that you're beginning the day, either 30 or 40 or 50 years from now, and you know it's going to be your last day, that when you go to sleep that night, you are not going to wake up. Mm. How would you want to spend that last day and who would you want to be there with you? I'd want to spend the day with my my partner that I have now. I'd want to spend the day with the family that I've created in my mind and with whichever children I have. Um, and just spending the entire day just lazing around on a beach, um, basking in the sunset, basking in the waves, engaging my five senses for the entire day and just really having a sense of gratitude and just cherishing every single fucking moment that is passing by with my 
immediate family right there. And if you could leave a single message on a piece of paper for your grandchildren right before you went to sleep, what would you write? <sighs> a single message on a piece of paper, man, I, I would write own, I know this sounds cliche as hell, but own your, your, where the fuck your heart wants to go, regardless of external circumstances. And do not let your values be dictated by the stress that you experience in your surroundings. So which is, I feel, is the inherent root of integrity. So have integrity and follow your fucking heart, as cliche as that sounds. Thank you so much for coming on, brother. I could talk to you for hours. I appreciate the work you do in the world. And this was a great conversation. No, I love you, man. Thank you for having me.